Welcome to National Gallery of Art Film Program, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of the art of film. World-renowned director and screenwriter Agnieszka Holland visited the National Gallery of Art on December 1st, 2013, and delivered the lecture, Viewing History Through the Filmmaker's Lens. Arguing that the past is never truly over, Holland refers to her award-winning historical dramas, Europa, Europa, and In Darkness, both set in Nazi-occupied Poland during World War II, as well as to her most recent project, Burning Bush, a three-part miniseries produced in the Czech Republic. Burning Bush investigates the ramifications of student Jan Pollock's 1969 self-immolation, a protest against the Soviet invasion a year earlier. Thank you very much. I'm not sure it's the best way to spend the Sunday afternoon, but if you think so, uh, I'm here for you. Um, and I will share some thoughts and some experiences um, as a filmmaker when doing, um, when doing historical, historical films or the film from the recent history. Um, I put it on paper because it's a little too complicated and dangerous for me to just improvise it in English. Uh, so you have to, uh, you have to uh, accept it. Sorry. I will try to read it um, in the way that you will understand what I'm reading. I hope it will work. Um, my accent is what it is, so please be tolerant. So um, subject of the lecture we, we've been discussing with, um, with Peggy is viewing history through the filmmaker's lens. Uh, so it is, I'm not a scholar, you know, so it's really told out of my experience, and uh, I'm not even sure that it will be useful for anyone, but it's what I can tell about it. Um, when I was 13 years old, I, I became fascinated with ancient Rome. The impulse for that was a highly suggestive Polish TV adaptation of Billy Wilder's the uh, Ides of March. I desperately want, uh, wanted to enter this intense world, and so I decided that I had reincarnated, reincarnated many times, and that in uh, ancient Rome I, I was Brutus, <laughs> with all his complexity and remorse. This kind of the, like flirting with the provocation after became my sign to some extent. Um, then I return uh, in the Renaissance, but not as uh, Michelangelo or Leonardo, but as an unknown friend of the latter, who, by the way, had a mysterious, dangerous relationship with Buonarroti. I even kept diaries uh, at these pretended incarnations of mine. I was also convinced that one of my incarnations lived in the occupied Poland during the Second World War, but this seemed too painful to write about. It wasn't until years later that the subject came back to me. I don't really believe in the truthfulness of films describing historical events that happened ages ago. The stronger the remoteness, the more arbitrarily a filmmaker has to present it. This engenders a certain risk of failing into the most commonly encountered kind of kitsch, simplification, anachronism, over-aesthetization. The easiest step is to imitate the external time indicators, thought even this requires intuition, knowledge, and diligence, such as costumes, props, architectural details. The most difficult task is to discover the sense of inner truth, which makes the story deeply rooted in the historical context, but at the same time doesn't make it look like some history manual article. The recipe for success is to present the historical events in their complexity, but in a way that would make the modern audience relate to them. I will be not focusing here on the films presenting events from further time, especially from periods that didn't left us numerous written testimonies. The part of antiquity, prehistorical times, the pre-Columbian America, or the civilization of Vikings, um, and numerous barbaric tribes are virtually impossible to recreate, apart from the purely external superficial level. This is why most of the movies about those times, depending on their budget and on the filmmakers' and producers' concept, are pure entertainment. 
They are close to a fairy tale or a kind of metaphorical projection of contemporary problems. In this sense, they resemble science fiction movies uh, in that they reach a similar um, cognitive horizon. I'm interested the most in modern times. Uh, since the first years of the 19th century and the uh, perversely interested, interesting 20th century. As the popular Chinese course says, may you live in interesting times. I, will, I am fascinated by the question whether a future film has all the tools to present and express the reality of these times in an objective, meaningful, and modern way if we acknowledge that objectivity uh, even exists. I will not be focusing here uh, on my experiences um, with depicting the 19th century reality, but not because this period is not contemporary enough or because uh, the difficulties I encountered while shooting such films as Washington Square, The Secret Garden, Copying Beethoven and Total Eclipse. By the way, uh, all of those films um, were um, shot um, in English, even if two last were repetitively, respectively German and French subjects. Um, so I don't think that I don't want to tell that they've been not instructive and enriching. Uh, it is just that other two periods, probably for personal reason, uh, are particularly close to my heart, namely the communist era and the Shoah. To me, they are the most important chapters of recent history. But the essence, essence of these murderous utopias seem extremely difficult to grasp, especially in a future film. We could say, and this rule most certainly applies to Holocaust, that the immensity of these barbaric crimes, the mystery of the evil, that showed it, uh, its face during these um, awful times, escaped the limits of classic narration, and every attempt on unveiling this mystery seemed to be doomed to failure. The only thing we can do is um, reviving the facts, collecting personal testimonies, and ask the same questions over and over again, knowing that we probably won't even get any satisfactory answers. Claude Lanzmann, the director of the monumental documentary Shoah and self-proclaimed guru of the all Holocaust-related movies, uh, criticized very harshly the idea of uh, depicting uh, the Holocaust within the context of a future film. Uh, Lanzmann's view is shared recently by Paweł Śpiewak, the director of the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw. Their arguments are based on reasonable premises, both Landsman and Spiewak, and surely a lot of more specialists in the matter, argue that because that unbelievable level of evil, absurdity, and suffering during the Holocaust surpasses the limits of our understanding, the introduction of the slightest element of fiction, stylization, or emotional manipulation will inevitably lead to a certain trivialization of the horrors of Shoah. Therefore, as Landsman and Spiewak claim, the only right way of describing the Holocaust in the, through the historical documentary, and the only people who have the right to tell these stories, uh, are historians, witnesses, and survivors, both the persecutors and the victims, but mostly the latter. This is probably why Landsman accepted Polanski's The Pianist. He simply didn't feel in place uh, to judge the artist who, as a child, was a victim of the Holocaust. I have to admit that I myself questioned numerous times my right to describe such unimaginable instance of evil using the film language, especially this of the future film. Before I dive into my dilemmas and specific difficulties that I had to overcome during the process of writing, co-writing, and directing my Holocaust-related movies, I want to discuss two arguments against Landsman and Spiewak's viewpoint. The first argument is purely pragmatic. If we assume that history can teach us a lesson, that we are not condemned to the Nietzschean eternal return, 
the reoccurrence of the same mistakes and crimes committed by humanity in a cyclic pattern, like in the Comedy Groundhog Day, then we should aim at educating as many people as possible about such events as the Holocaust. Knowing that people can awaken in themselves such unspeakable evil, learning about the mechanisms that led to such terrible crimes, feeling empathy toward the victims, and sometimes even to the persecutors, or identifying emotionally with the suffering of millions of people can be a form of inoculation against similar instances in the future. Saying these words, I can entirely shake a strong sense of existential pessimism. I'm not delusional about human nature. I'm not even sure whether there is a such thing as moral progress of humanity, nor whether people can be educated in any different field than technology. But while having these doubts, I'm nevertheless convinced that my second generation share a kind of moral obligation to evoke and analyze these instances of evil, whether they believe in the sense of doing so or not. The Holocaust had been introduced to the collective consciousness, most of all uh, via audiovisual fictional narratives, future films and television series. For the American people, for instance, uh, Shoah reminded for a long time an unknown or barely known, uh, often certainly not the most interesting aspect of the Second World War. The first impulse had been perhaps the publication of the Diary of Anne Frank and the theatrical play under the same title, but the real breakthrough moment for the American audience had been the television series Holocaust, in which Meryl Streep uh, had her debut. Uh, interestingly enough, the same series played an important role in post-war German society. Who cares that the series was terribly simplified, melodramatic and sometimes even sentimental? Who cares that Schindler's List, another crucial production in contemporary discourse about Shoah in contemporary America and Germany, ended on the highly uh, inappropriate optimistic note? Who cares that the film Life is Beautiful by Roberto Benigni misused the Holocaust trying to find a moral value in this absurd crime by telling the audience that a parent can save a child from death in the concentration camp if he or she loves it strongly enough? But all critical remarks aside, the film and television series I mentioned taught people all over the world about the biggest crime against humanity of our times. The audiences were so deeply moved by these stories that they decided to incorporate the Holocaust into their national and personal identity. Nowadays, most of the American universities have Holocaust studies, not because it is politically correct, but because young people, not only those of Jewish origin, have a genuine curiosity of this particular subject matter. A similar educational empathic function for the American society only now in the matter of the slavery uh, had such productions um, at the television series Roots or uh, Steve McQueen's recent film, 12 Years as a Slave. Both of these productions, thought each one on a very different level, present a rather simplified version of the, uh, of the um, slavery, crimes against... Um, uh, and segregation, racial segregation, but they nevertheless um, show an important educa educational value, are accessible to the white audience, and offer the opportunity to identify with the face of the film's characters. It would really be quite inconsiderate to abandon such effective educational tool. My second argument against the viewpoint of Lanzmann and Spivak on Holocaust narratives is closely related to the question of the role of art, taking on issues that are impossible to explain or grasp, brush, um, grasp, grasp rationally is one of the most important challenges of all artists. Asking funda fundamental questions about evil, death or crime is essential for all mankind. An artist is some, someone who takes on the um, arduous task of explaining some of them despite being aware that it could be uh, compared to the uphill battle of Sisyphus. Artists 
take the challenge of expressing the unexplainable, even though they themselves did not endure the event they address, address in their art pieces. Why should the Holocaust be excluded uh, from this mental and artistic process? Who, are, uh, who has the prerogative to pull artists away from their inner imperative? It seems to me <clears throat> all, countries, um, all countries have problems when facing own historical guilds. It seems to me that the less influential countries have more difficulties when dealing with their past than powerful international superpowers. In my opinion, this could be explained by their fear of going back to the collective traumatic experiences of despair and powerlessness. Revisiting those memories turns out to be so painful that in order to avoid it, people would rather steer their historical narration towards some kind of a heroic lie. In my opinion, this is why honest movies about the atrocities of the past century are so rare in the countries such as Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, um, and the former Yugoslavia. These people, filmmakers included, uh, do not want to talk about what they went through because it was so painful, shameful, and humiliating. Therefore, they choose the escapist way. Their stylistic choices gravitate toward irony, the grotesque, or heroic tale. Even in the best films of the Polish school about the Second World War, the most popular stylistic approach was a mix of heroic tale, Andrzej Wajda, and irony, Andrzej Munk. Uh, but France, or even US, Japan, or Austria were not better in this matter, with less po of possible excuses. The Holocaust didn't find its place in the collective conscience in the most of Eastern European countries, like Lithuania, Latvia, or Ukraine. The Czech society struggled with a few shameful episodes of its recent history. Surrounding without a fight to the Germans after the 1938 Munich betrayal by Western diplomacy, the widespread collaboration with the Nazis during the Second World War, and the conformist attitude toward the communist regime during the Stalinian period and after the Soviet invasion in 1968. It is hard to make claims on a small, hopeless nation for not making the ultimate, ultimate sacrifice. So buried deep into the collective subconscious, the shame and the bitterness lingered in the Czech society. The mechanism of social amnesia is clearly described in Milan Kundera, The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, and in his other throwly Czech books. The Czech society was eager to forget, to forget their shameful behavior, and when it was discussed, it had to be presented in a comic, comedic, or ironical way. Because of the uh, similar, so manipula manipulate, uh, multiplied inability to face the post-Holocaust trauma, trauma, Jewish people didn't really want to discuss the Holocaust in the late 40s and 50s, when the experience was still fresh. Immediately after the war, there were very few movies, books, and memoirs dealing with this traumatic experience by Jewish authors. In the 1960s, the topic reappeared, and together with the publication of numerous testimonies by Holocaust survivors, in the 80s and 90s entered the mainstream cinema. Angry Harvest, my first Holocaust movie from 1985, was shot with extremely modest, even minimalistic means. It tells the story of the Jewish woman who escapes from the concentration camp, uh, transportation, and a Polish small-time farmer who takes care of her after accidentally stumbling into her in the woods. He hides her in his basement, uh, falls in love with her, and starts to abuse her sexually. He makes her dependent on him, and their relationship gradually looks more and more like that of a guard and a prisoner with a serious case of the Stockholm Syndrome. Also, it is still a relationship between a man and a woman, a Catholic and a Jew. The Second World War and the Holocaust are just a background for this relationship. They happen somewhere off the set. 
Maybe the strategy of Pars Pro Toto helped me to prevent, present an important emotional truth about um, their experience. My next Holocaust-related movie was Europa Europa. This time the screenplay was based um, on a real story, and its main character was very much alive when I was sh shooting the story, uh, the film. He still is, um, by the way. I met him in Calavari like a few months ago. Uh, <clears throat> the, the story of Sally, the film tells the story of Sally, uh, Shlomo, who escapes Germany with his family after the Crystal Night, and when the German troops invade Poland, he flees with his brother to the east. The eastern part of Poland is then occupied by the Soviets, still Hitler um, Alice, and that time, at that time, and Sally finishes in the uh, Stalinist orphanage. There he becomes a fanatical communist, totally indoctrinated by the propaganda. But then the German troops invade the Soviet Union. Sally is taken into captivity, and using his perfect German language, he comes clean as a German orphan. Eventually, he becomes a Wehrmacht hero and a student of the most, most exclusive Hitler Youth School. His story interested me for numerous reasons. The main character was similar to Woody's Alan Zelig. He takes on various masks and identities and is tossed by the two 20th century totalitarian systems, which also left their mark on the history of my family the German Nazism, and the Stalinist Soviet communism. Sally's story included also a great deal of questions about identity. For me, this issue is particularly important. I am half Polish, half Jewish, and have always in my childhood felt torn between the leftist viewpoint of my atheist parents and the simple folk-like Catholicism of my nanny. I was born in communist Poland. I completed my studies in Czechoslovakia, and in my adult life, I became a political immigrant, first in France and then in the U.S. I am a woman who works in the profession dominated by men, and I also see myself as a person with an intellectual sensitivity whose job consists for the most part of hard physical work. We film directors are closer to being the caporals than the poets. What is the core of human nature? Is our identity formed by chance, genes, circumstances, history, some imminent individual future of character, or do we exist only as a reflection of other people's opinions and expectations? This paradox within the protagonist of Europa Europa is that his Jewish identity is somehow conditioned by his circumcised penis. He would even, we would even say that it prevents him from forgetting who he really is and, in a way, save the boy's soul. Also, it might also cost him his life. The style of the story was extremely eclectic. It contained elements of classical tra tragedy, the grotesque, picaresque novel, 18th-century philosophical tale in the style of Voltaire, uh, and even um, of a modern-day comic books. I had to make the difficult choice to stay true to these aesthetics, even though I knew that it was risky. Nobody had ever before told a Holocaust-related story in such a way, and nobody had ever dared to show a victim of the Holocaust in such an anti-heroic way. I was afraid that this light tone would displease the Jewish audience, but my concerns disappeared very soon. In fact, I actually met the expectations of the Holocaust survivors. They were up with the cheap drama. They preferred a boldly told true story. I was accused um, of anti-Semitism by two puffed-up German critics, which I thought was actually pretty funny in the context of my own life story. <laughs> the first problem I encountered when touching upon the Holocaust was the challenge of the, depicting the unspeakable horror and brutality. In the time of Europa, Europa, it was much easier. I shot this movie in 1989-1990. It was much easier than 20 years later, when I was shooting in darkness. In the beginning of the 90s, there wasn't so many Holocaust-related movies, and the whole imaginary of Shoah, the starved dead bodies, the skeletons on the streets of ghetto, 
the barbed wires and the stripped clothing has not been trivialized by the film industry. Nevertheless, I didn't want to fall into overnaturalism. I sought images that were more suggestive and then, descri- then descriptive, and that would be flashes, fragments, and not a coherent totality. This approach turned out to be effective and um, can actually evoke stronger emotions than even the most stripped-down um, literalness. Uh, it was much more challenging from this point of view to revisit the subject of Holocaust 20 years later. Within darkness, I wanted to achieve an, ex- an extreme verism, even naturalism. This is one of the reasons why the matter of keeping the linguistic authenticity, my characters speak various languages, truth to the place of the action, Lvov, um, was so important. I strongly felt that this approach is the only one, only honest way to tell this story. I was intent on making the characters ambivalent and not stereotypical. I wanted to break with the tendency to idealize victims. I was shooting this film after a series of Hollywood productions where all the Jews were shown as martyrs, lifeless, bodiless, and angelic. The protagonist of In Darkness, a Polish sewer worker from Lvov, is also not an angel. He is a small-time crook and a petty thief, full of anti-Semitic prejudice and stereotypes. He sees in the Jews that he agrees to hide in the sewers, a source of easy money. At first, it is clear for him that when they won't be able to pay, he will denounce them. When eventually he acts differently, he himself seems surprised. But the Jews also have to abandon their stereotypical thinking about Polish sewer worker. Both sides have to shake their masks and awaken in them the human solidarity. The main topic of this story is the fine line between good and evil and how easy it is to cross to the dark side. Another second and more difficult problem was when I uh, came when I asked myself the question if it's possible to tell the story of the Holocaust without using the stories of the survivors. If you watch the Holocaust movies, I think that probably 90% of them, or maybe even more, are based on the stories of the survivor, which in some ways is untrue. Among the Jews in Eastern Europe, over 90% died, didn't survive. And when I tried, when I tried to, to, to find the producer for the story where all my protagonists are actually killed or died, I was unable to finance it. Um, and in this moment, especially when doing In Darkness, uh, I reminded myself uh, Andrzej Vaida's movie Canal. I don't know if any of you have seen this film or remember it. It was shot in the um, late 50s. And it, tells, it happens also in the sewer. Entire movie happens actually in the sewers. And uh, it shows the group of the underground Polish fighters during the Warsaw Uprising who are going into the sewers to escape the Nazis. On the beginning, we see all the group marching toward the, toward the, the whole of the sewers. And uh, the voiceover showing them one by one tells that by the end of the, of, the, of the story, they all will be dead. I thought, why is it possible when showing the Polish fighter? Why is it impossible when showing the civil victim of Holocaust? And then I understood that the audience is capable to accept this kind of the tragic end only if it's lit by the heroic quality, by the real martyrhood. So I think that it will be possible to do something like in Canal with the, as a story, with the film telling the story of the Jewish fighter and the Jewish uprising. It will be impossible to do the same film, or very difficult to do, to do finance and to do the same film when telling the stories of millions of victims in ghettos, in concentration camps, who are not 
heroic martyrs, but the victims of the absurd slaughtering. It's a bit like with the victims of the natural catastrophes. Imagine the film about tsunami when everybody dies. No, we want to see Naomi Watts or somebody, you know, surviving it, and then we can feel that this absurd events has some kind of the moral sense. I think it's dishonest, frankly, you know, but it's like that. So, <clears throat> so in some point I resigned. I, I thought that probably in order to tell this story, we need uh, this little light of hope. Uh, for me, um, when telling a deeply personal story or a story important for my, for my country, it is absolutely crucial that I exercise a kind of psychodrama or psychoanalysis to translate my point of view into a more universal one. Um, after that, I need to find different perspectives within the story in order to make it more objective or complete similar to the Hegelian concept of totality of the perspectives. This objectivism, achieved by incorporating numerous points of view in the story, is essential for any epic or dramatic narrative. I think that in order to make something powerful and universal, you need to filter it through your own pain and then try to cut this pain out of the story. At least it's my method. For me, the 20th century and even the last decades of the 19th century do not belong to the past. These times are so deeply present in contemporary world that when I'm shooting a period film, I never think that I'm making a movie about the past. I'm trying to find traces of past events in the present. I want to convey a feeling of immediate urgency in order to create the impression that what we are watching on the screen is not entirely resolved, but is happening before our very eyes and can still affect our life in many ways. I do not want to come off as pretentious. I do not believe that film can change reality. I just hope to reach the audience through emotional channels that unveil the feeling of empathy. Even if late, the essential experience of Second World War was represented widely by the world cinema, while the subject of communism stayed barely touched. After reading some analyses and leading into some thoughts, I realized that some feelings behind overlooking communism in contemporary film and literature are similar to the ones that accompanied Jews who did not want to tell stories about the Holocaust immediately after the Second World War. The situation of the oppressed during the long period of communism was extremely unheroic and humiliating. The later stages of the regime were not so dramatic. Unlike in the time of Hitler or Stalin, there were not regular concentration camps and political assassinations have been rare. The regime became soft, and so a more normal life was possible. A vast majority of population surrendered to this kind of light, but very persistent oppression. A vast majority of the population surrendered to this kind of light, but very persistent oppression, sorry. Uh, the, moral strength of people was the moral strength of people was broken because they were constantly forced to compromise their ideals and even their common knowledge and common sense. They wanted to be happy, to have a family and a job, everything that every human being wants. As soon as they started treating oppression as an inseparable element of their reality, this artificial life became normal, seemingly attractive, and surely a lot safer than in the free world. After the overthrow of communism in 1989, uh, Milos Forman compared the life in a capitalist country, where he spent the last 20 years of, uh, of his life, with the life in a communist society. He said that the difference could be explained by the comparison of, the, uh, of these two realities to a zoological garden and a jungle. The animals in a zoo live in the state of captivity. They spend their life in cages or some other kinds of limited spaces, but they are safe. They are never hungry, they are healthy, and if anything is wrong with them, they are given medicine. The species are separated from each other, so the big animals do not eat the smaller ones. In the jungle, capitalism, the animals run free, 
but they have to fight for everything. In a way, their life is much more stressful. The distinction between the people who are made for the jungle and those who are made for a zoological garden is still something which divides societies in post-communist countries. Interestingly enough, those who have um, a hard time dealing with freedom are very anti-communist today, and those who are successful in this jungle-like reality are not preoccupied with the past. They forgive and forget much easier than those who show a strong nostalgia for the pseudo-safety of communism and, and are dreaming about some kind of the totalitarian power. I think this paradox makes it very difficult to tell stories about the communist era in Eastern Europe. The enemies are not obvious. Those pointed by a majority are rarely the real ones. The reality in contemporary narration is so ambiguous and the value is so mixed up that we are constantly lying about our past, coloring it by our contemporary political aims. And it's virtually impossible to remain honest about our present if we choose to lie about our past. And it's virtually impossible. Um, consequently, the present uh, become uh, crippled by this manipulation. This is why we have not been able to produce movies that will describe the communist experience of my generation and that of our parents and children, the most important collective experience of our lives, an experience that formed and destroyed at least four or five generations of people from communist countries. The word destroyed is not only a reference to all those who are killed by the regime. Millions of people were brutally murdered or kept in prison by the Soviet system in all Soviet Union, China, Korea, in Czechoslovakia, Poland, or Hungary. But also to those who managed to lead a relatively normal life under the regime. Millions of, of wasted lives. This is how it looks from the present perspective. We are still unable to make a single movie that would make the story about communists accessible to the world and present it as successfully as the movies about the Holocaust did in the 80s and 90s. Maybe in 40 or 50 years from now, people will find a way to speak about the communist era and treat it as an important collective experience of humanity. But I feel angry that we are still not ready for such a narrative. A few years ago, the writer of Burning Bush, the film which will be screened today, wrote to me from Prague and asked me to read his screenplay about Jan Palach. Jan Palach was 21 years old student, my contemporary. I, att I attended Prague Film School FAMU between 1967 and 1971, so the subject interested me because it felt so close personally and politically. In 1968, Czechoslovakia experienced a very powerful awakening of freedom a bit similar to Polish October in 1956. But in 1956, I, uh, I was a child, and in 1968, I was 20 years old. In Czechoslovakia, the process of destalinization came much later than in Poland, and happened at the same time when important political and social movements were taking place all over the world. 1968 was the year of student strikes in Paris and the United States. Polish students were also protesting, but for different reasons. The whole world seemed to be changing. In Czechoslovakia, this change was accompanied by the revision of communist praxis. The prevailing approach was rather naive, leftist and humanistic, and the idea of communism had not been rejected. It was the form of execution and not the ideology that were, was criticized. Young people all over Prague were marching, singing, dancing, creating modern art, discovering new music, or producing independent theatrical productions. In August 68, the tanks of Warsaw Pact came and crushed these innocent spirits. The reaction of the Czechoslovak society was uh, admirable. People went out into the streets to show the world that they will not be broken. These feelings of solidarity and um, togetherness lasted for about three or four months. In November, we organized a national student strike, which seemed to reinforce the positive feeling. The student union asked the famous politicians, writers, and filmmakers come to talk with us. It was the first time that I met Václav Havel. 
By the end of the strike, I strongly felt that we had lost. I think that I was one of very few people who had this premonition so early. I realized that even reaching an agreement with the authorities couldn't replace gaining real political power. I was right. It was impossible to win and preserve the freedom achieved during the Prague Spring. People slowly started to compromise their ideals. Jan Palach also had this feeling. He was a sensitive young man, very moral and brave, and he decided that the time has come to awaken the whole nation. His act of self-immolation was directed not against Soviet leaders. It was addressed to the whole Czechoslovak society. In his letter, Palach was urging people to not give up their newly regained freedom. Politically, he was smart enough, so he wrote in his statement that his act was a part of a wider conspiracy. He called himself Torch Number One, suggesting that there were many of them all over the country. Uh, he treated, uh, threatened, threatened that if his demands are not, be, are not accepted by the regime, the next torches will follow. We all believed in his words. Among young people, there certainly was a high level of excitement and emotional outpouring, strong enough to make their highest the highest sacrifice. The existence of a conspiracy group of young people willing to die for the freedom looked very credible. The authorities believed it and were afraid that the youth movement will become more radical. It took Palach three days to die. During this time, the authorities did everything in their power to deconspire other torches and stop others from following Palach's act. The reaction to his death was monumental. He became a national hero, and his funeral turned into a political demonstration. One month later, another student, Jan Zaitz, set himself on fire and died immediately. He was not connected with Palak, but he saw the known of the request of the torch number one had been met. So he wanted to shake up the society and the authorities once again. But this time, nobody wanted to hear about the self-immolated student. During this one month, following Palak's act, the society changed. And people decided that they do not need heroes like that. Accepting the painful reality meant accepting oppression, but it became clear that the Czechoslovak society was not ready for sacrifice so extreme. I think that the extremity, extremity of Palach and Zaitz could have actually reinforced the apathy of the Czechoslovak society. For the following 20 years, the country endured the so-called normalization. Needless to say, nothing about this process was normal. People accepted that they had to live a lie. They were practically prisoners in their own countries. Political immigrants had no contact with their families. Writers have been unable to publish their texts. People who dared to protest against normalization were thrown out of their schools or jobs, and as a result, intellectuals and highly educated professionals worked as custodians, janitors, or street cleaners. Czechoslovakia became an extremely unpleasant place. Political oppression was very, um, uh, political opposition uh, was relatively small, few hundred people altogether. Even more prominent figures as Havel was generally unknown to the, um, to the wider public opinion. Radio Free Europe was not widely followed. It was difficult to catch the frequency of the station. It was obstructed by the regime. But I think that even if the station had been uh, accessible, people would not have listened. They did not want to hear about those uh, who showed courage and stepped up against the regime because it stood in um, juxtaposition to their own conformist behavior. The Czechoslovak society lived like this for 20 years. During this time in Poland, the strikes in Gdańsk in August 1980 uh, created uh, solid, solid, Solidarność Free Trade Unions after followed the 15 months of the relative freedom and, um, and um, introduction of martial law. I like in, unlike in Czechoslovakia, uh, Poland had a huge social movement. 
but the brutality of martial law broke also um, there the most of the spirits. The opposition against uh, the Soviet rules uh, and Soviet ruled regime once again shown it to be hopeless. Uh, it should come as a, no surprise that most of Czechs and Slovaks did not want to hear and follow uh, Polish events neither, either. The so-called Velvet Revolution in 1989 in Prague, in Czechoslovakia, was initiated by a group of young students, and it resulted in a huge wave of demonstration. When communists finally fell apart, people greeted freedom as some kind of gift. It happened to them. They were a part of it, and they rejoiced for several weeks, but at the end of the day, they realized that, that, that all they want is to forget the past. They were no eager to analyze their dull and thoughtfully unheroic lives during the, the years of communism. In the following years, not a single honest and serious film about this experience would make, except of one, touching some aspects of these times, uh, Kawasaki Rolls by Jan Grzebek. There were a few ironical comedies. They were all constructed according to the same idea. Yes, things were complicating during the communist era, but it wasn't all so bad. It was just funny and absurd. When I first read the script of Burning Bush, I found it very well written and accurate. The way the story was described fell very close to my memory. I actually thought the author must have lived through the same experiences. I immediately became interested in the project because it felt so personal to me. Witnessing the carnival of freedom followed by the shameful process of normalization form, formed my personality, made me who I am. When the screenwriter and the producers of Burning Bush approached me, I happened to be in Poland when I was finishing in darkness, so the Czechs asked me if they could come to discuss the project. To my surprise, the author of the script and the producers turned out to be very young. They were in their early 20s. At first, I was a bit confused, but they immediately won me, they all won me over. I was deeply touched by the representatives of the youngest generation who wanted to tell the story seriously. They wanted something real and complex, something as personal and dramatic as possible, a film that would show also the tragic dimension of the events, creating an honest recollection of what happened, but without any unnecessary pathos. They were very young and strongly felt that some part of their identity have been amputated by the silence. No one really talked about it when they were growing up. They needed to tell this story in order to find themselves. They knew that the virus of communism was still very much present in their country. Moses did not take his people straight from Egypt to Promised Land. They spent 40 years roaming the desert, so the older generation who remembered the years of slavery perished. Nowadays, our lifespan is much longer, so 40 years is not enough. We can still feel the virus inside us. I was curious why these young people, who seemed free of the aftermath consequences of communism, asked me to shoot Burning Bush. They answered that no Czech director was ready to get involved in this project. On the one hand, I also see myself par par partially as a Czech filmmaker, because of my study, and I lived through this experience, was involved in the student movement, even spent some time in Prague prison, and was deeply influenced by Czech culture, film, and literature. On the other hand, however, I lived the following years in Poland and abroad, and gained a fresh perspective. This is why they believed that I was right for the job. When we showed the film to Czechs, the reaction was very emotional. Younger members of the audience were equally shaken as people who actually remembered these events. I had done some movies that had a strong emotional impact on the audience, but this one was special. Such a widespread national reaction never happened to me before. I had the feeling that we finally told an overlooked chapter of their history. Czechs and Slovaks treated this film as a cathartic experience, which helped them understand something essential about themselves. 
we, <clears throat> we wanted to show the slow process of how the Czechoslovak society were gradually becoming resigned and conformist. The anatomy, anatomy of seemingly soft, but in reality brutal oppression and of the moral corruption that crushed all social values and solidarity. But we also wanted to show those who found the courage to go against the stream. There were only a few attempts to describe the communist era in contemporary Polish cinema. A few movies, some of them very good, were made in uh, Russia, Hungary, and Romania, but the most popular film about communists was made in Germany, The Lives of Others by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, remained the only film that reached such a huge audience and became widely recognized. I cannot understand there are not artistically honest and powerful movies about the gulags, purges, and other Stalinian experiences. The absence of those productions make the past atrocities vanish from the world's collective memory. Most of the young Italians, French people, Americans, and even young Czechs, Russians, or Poles do not have any idea about the past of their country. In Russia, Stalin is slowly becoming a, becoming a national hero and the greatest man of 20th century. I am of the opinion that it was entirely up to us, and we failed. Representatives of my generation did not make movies that should have been made. The best films were made when communists were still in power, but the censorship was relatively weak. I have mostly Polish examples in my mind, like Andrzej Wajda's Man of Marble or Richard Bugajski's Interrogation. But there are so few, and you acknowledge the immensity of this experience. And yes, I still think that we failed, and now we have to come up with a way of improving the situation. If such highly traumatizing past events as the communist period is being passed over in silence and overlooked, its virus keeps on circulating in the society and constantly renews itself through the corruption of social and political life, interpersonal relationships, and the several moral crises of the whole uh, nation, nations. All these symptoms are obviously apparent in the countries that seem to be, have regained their freedom, only to realize that they are not ready to put it to use. But in many other countries, unburdened by communists, we can also observe a growing sense of being on the brink of the serious crisis and the fear that the demons of the turbulent 20th century will come back. In this situation, the least the filmmakers can do is to tell captivating stories, to describe the world around us, and to keep on asking discerning questions about our identity, our guilt in the past, our responsibility for the future. Thank you. I don't have the watch, uh, but I think we have the time for some questions. A little oh, feather from okay. the mouth. Okay, so you're asking um, many questions this afternoon about good and evil, about why there was a Holocaust, mm -hmm. and the future. You know, what does the future hold for us? So, uh, so why do you think there was a Holocaust? Why do you think there's hatred of other people in the world? And why don't we all get along? Based on, on your, your, I mean, do you, do you have your own personal opinion? Well, I, I think that, you know, I think that the Holocaust is like the border experience for the humanity. I, I don't think that it's only atrocity which, is, which happened in the, in, the, in, in the close past, but I think, the, um, I think it's a great mystery to us. We, 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 we cannot understand, you know, where was a man during this time, where was God, and what kind of the consequences it has for the aftermath. So it's, I think it keeps coming over and over again, those questions. And I think it's like with the myths, like Greek tragedy or some great religion books, it will be, it will be coming back in the, in the further generations. I, it's just my opinion. Hi. Do you uh, have any comments on the uh, Hannah Arendt film, if you've just seen it? And also, um, what's your view of the huge controversy about her banality of evil from the Eichmann trial. What I do about it? 
Well, what Hannah Arendt wrote, it, it's a little misrepresented, I think, misunderstood. Um, the banality of evil doesn't mean that the evil is banal or not worthy of, 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 of analysis or, or, or description, but it means that on the first sight, it, it's not different from, from the other thing, that the people who commit evil, like, like Eichmann, are not different, are as human as another people in some way. The danger, the, the danger is there, that we cannot um, uh, exteriorize the evil to some kind of monsters, which, which we like to do, you know. It was all Germans or Nazis or, you know, monsters or Stalin or whatever. The, the most, like, disturbing experience of 20th century was that the all nations and all, all, all people are practical, practically participating in this. Here is this question of the banality of evil. And um, we have always tendency to, 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 to see the, 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 the wrong things outside of us. And I think that the real battle happens between the evil and the good happens inside of us. Um, I've, I've already seen your film, Burning Bush, and uh, congratulations on this. And I was wondering, in the opening scene, which I find absolutely very, very interesting, when you juxtapose the uh, Czech Republic before and after, when we see people dancing, and then after that we really see atomized people in a kind of robotic way where only a child can really notice that something is happening. And you just said that you, you try not to make films about the past, so I was wondering, how can you relate what happened in '68 to what is happening today? And but I think it's connected, you know. I think that now in most of post-communist countries, after the first period of the hope and problems of the, you know, difficulty of the of the trans, uh, trans, <clears throat> transition, and so um, uh, after um, it, it was some big projects like, for example, um, under European Union or NATO, and when it happened, uh, comes some kind of the very deep disillusion that it's not really the freedom we imagined, that it actually, it, it has a lot of, of, of sides which are much more unpleasant that we remember from your past, that the corruption among, you know, the politicians is enormous, that the cynicism of the political class is it's, 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 um, heartbreaking, that the people are not friendly to each other, that the people are actually forgot the, 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 the sense of the solidarity in any ways, and so on and so on. And that actually, you know, um, the freedom is not sexy. The democracy is not sexy. That is the big problem of today's Europe, and not only Europe, but today's Europe is it's very visible. And those countries of uh, post-communism, except of uh, giving the new hope and the new kind of, you know, energy to older Europe, they are, they, are adding, they are adding to the problem. Uh, and I think that one, one of the reasons is that the communist wasn't analyzed, yes. That like, you know, like in the psycho psychotherapy, we need to make some really honest work altogether to, to, to figure out who we are after such a trauma, and we didn't. Yes, um, I have a question about your television series, um about Polish politics called Ekipa, mm -hmm. uh, which was very different from your other productions. Could you tell us what was the intention to make uh, a, ser a television series about the uh, political elites uh, in contemporary Poland? We've been doing the, uh, it was I think mm, 2006, 2007 actually. Uh, when we um, conceived, um, uh, supervised, uh, wrote, and directed the series, Polish uh, contemporary series, about something like the West Wing. It means it was about the prime minister and his, and his, and his team, the new prime minister and his team. Uh, and I uh, co-directed it uh, with my daughter and my sister, who are also directors. 
So it was the family business, but the reason was very pedagogical, if you want. I, I, I'm not sure if today I will find the strength to do something like that, or optimism to do something like that. We wanted to show, without being too uh, simplistic, um, the, possible, the, the, the passion and the interest which, which, which are in the politics, in the democratic politics, and to show that the politics are not necessarily all the crooks or, you know, the petty, you know, petty cynical um, 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 providers, but that you have the people who can actually, in the theater of the politics, find the reason to do something good for the, for the others. And that is difficult and dramatic and full of obstacles, but it is exactly sexy. So um, today it will be much more difficult to do it, you know. Um, your work really is so inspiring to my generation of filmmakers. And so I was wondering if I could ask you, in terms of doing politically engaged work, how that, how that affects the technical choices you make when you're thinking about the aesthetics of the work you're putting together, what cameras you're shooting on, and if, that, if the political and ethical concerns affect those sorts of choices. Are you shooting on digital now, or are you shooting still exclusively on film? Those kinds of I hear you, but not so well. Oh, my question was about um, that. Some, if you wouldn't mind speaking briefly about the technical side and how you technical think about, side um, in terms of cameras you use, are you shooting mm-hmm. on digital these days, and how mm-hmm. that, um, what the interplay between the political and uh, ethical concerns and the aesthetics, uh, how how those interact? I'm. Um, it depends on the movie in some way. The last two works I shot on digital. Um, in darkness I shot on red which was pretty difficult because it was a very dark film so we've been struggling but the effect is I think good and, um, and in Burning Bush we shot on Alexa and actually I loved it I think it was, I don't have the problem with it you know, today especially when it's so developed and it will go better and better it gives us a lot of freedom in some way and it makes it more cheaper and more democratic uh, and also it allows me to use more of the you know, footage in some way. Even if I don't like to shoot everything, I have pretty strong like, idea what I want to have in my editing room. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I think that the tools are, like, secondary. Of course, it's some kind of nostalgia for, you know, for film and... Uh, and, um, and also uh, many of my mm, friends, editors of my generation, have the nostalgia for the Steinbeck or another uh, editing table, but I prefer Avid, for example, you know. I was, uh, it's, it, it, it works as quick as I am thinking, so I don't need to wait and to read something in the meantime. Um, Thank you very much. Um, I find it ironic that there was such a flowering of uh, cinema in, in Poland and Czechoslovakia in the 50s and 60s, sponsored by uh, uh, the state and their, their famous film schools, uh, not in East Germany or other Eastern European countries. And this is a, the Aesopian uh, fable of uh, smuggling in satire against the regime like the Fireman's Ball by Milos Forman. Uh, and uh, I wonder uh, why, uh, to evade the censor, I wonder why in Czechoslovakia and Poland especially there was such a, a great flowering of, of film at that time. That, and, and, and as you said, today when the memories of the communist oppression have receded, probably won't, won't get those great movies about communism again, even in uh, uh, disguise. I, I really, I don't know exactly, but I think, you know, when I was deciding that I want to be a filmmaker, I was 15, and I found three reasons why the best career for me. I didn't know if I would be admitted to the film school, and so first I was painting, and I wanted to express myself visually. Then I told the stories. I was telling the stories from my childhood, so, you know, this narrative to, to tell the stories was something which was natural to me as an expression. And the third reason, which was also important, it was that I wanted to have the power. I like to tell people what they have to do. <laughs> and uh, in communist countries, it was impossible to do it through the politics, except if you wanted to be you know, the, the communist functionary, which I certainly didn't want to be. 
so in some way making movies gave you this you know field of freedom and power and many of the of the of the people like Polanski was talking about it as well uh, were like driven toward this toward this field it's um, i think it's why many of strong personalities uh, found their, their 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 place there and today when you have so many fields suddenly you know it's not so attractive so not only in Poland but also in, in other countries it became not such a important position to be a filmmaker so thank you very very much this was thank wonderful you. um You've been listening to a National Gallery of Art film program podcast. Mm-hmm.